the old pilot's plain tales. Key must go. When I look back at accidents that have moulded our modern attitude to commercial flying, one of the incidents that springs to mind is the crash of British European Airways Flight 548. A Hawker Siddeley Trident, the incident is often referred to by its location as the Staines Air Disaster. Following the total loss of the aircraft and all on board, it remains the United Kingdom's deadliest air accident. The disaster revealed a fatal combination of antagonistic pilots, troublesome aircraft design, union disputes and medical issues. This was certainly a landmark accident. The date was the 18th of June 1972 and a key element of the story was Captain Stanley Key. At 51, Key was an experienced aviator with over 14,000 hours, 4,000 on type. A decorated wartime pilot, he was both extremely accomplished, experienced and a route check captain. He was known to be authoritative and a stickler for the rules. With him that day were two young graduates of the Hamble Flying School. Sitting in the co-pilot seat was 22-year-old Second Officer Keithley, who only had a few hundred hours. Keithley's training record was far from perfect, as his Hamble report showed that he was slow to learn and underconfident. Comments such as, he will need careful watching, and he was slow to react and lacked initiative, peppered his assessment. Behind them in the jump seat, with duties that included monitoring the two pilots flying the aircraft, was 2nd Officer Ticehurst. Of the two second officers, Ticehurst was the more experienced, a 24-year-old with 1,400 hours, 750 hours on type. Travelling with the crew that day and sitting behind the captain was John Collins, a deadheading captain who now flew freighters, but who had been an experienced Trident First Officer. There was a stark difference between the older wartime generation of pilots and the younger pilots who grew up after the conflict in the post-war boom. The captains were often thought of as arrogant, dictatorial and with a superior attitude, whereas the Hamble cadet pilots were considered green, limited in ability and probably looked down on for growing up in the easy-going 60s and 70s. The feeling of some pilots was obvious because in the aftermath of the accident it was found that the third pilot's table on the crashed aircraft had graffiti scribbled on it by discontented junior pilots. Key must go. Yes, but where? Down the drain. BOAC anywhere will do. Send Owens with him. When Stanley Key dies, who will be God's next representative in BEA? The Trident was an early jetliner and the first T-tailed rear three-engine aircraft to be built. It was operated mainly by UK airlines since shortly after its development, Boeing launched a very similar 727 which had greater appeal to the US market. A sophisticated aircraft for its time, the Trident was the first airliner to use an Autoland system in service. However, not all of its development went smoothly. 
it was discovered that aircraft with a T-tail could enter a stalled condition known as a super-stall. This occurred when the airflow from the wing of a stalled aircraft blanked the tail section, preventing recovery. In a super-stall, the elevators, which would normally be used to pitch the aircraft nose down and unstall the wing, were rendered useless. The danger had come to light during a flight when test pilots pitched the aircraft beyond the critical angle of attack and began fluttering downwards like a stone, with the pilots unable to lower the nose to recover. Luckily a wing dropped, and as the pilots worked the rudder they managed to roll the aircraft the other way. In this falling leaf manoeuvre eventually the nose came down and they were able to recover to normal flight. As a result, stall warning stick shakers and stall recovery stick pushers were fitted to prevent inadvertent stalls. However, the stick push system was considered by some pilots to overreact, and of ten activations between the aircraft entering service and the crash, three were spurious. Despite there having been a 70% correct operation of this device, and none after 1966 when it was improved, many pilots remain unconvinced. The problem may have been exacerbated by a lack of understanding. False stick shaker warnings were reasonably common, but they only needed a single sensor to register an approaching stall, whilst the stick pusher needed two sensors to activate at the same time. If required, the stick pusher system could be dumped, by moving an override lever on the captain's side of the centre console. Another relevant design feature was that the leading edge flaps, called droops on the trident, were controlled by a lever on the centre console, often to the right of the throttles. Immediately to the right of the droop lever was the flap lever, which moved in exactly the same sense, although the knob on top was uh, different in design. With the droops retracted, the aircraft had a stalling speed of well over 200 knots, so it was recognised early on that there should be some system to prevent accidental early retraction. As a consequence, a bulk was fitted that prevented the droops from being retracted with the flaps at 7 degrees or greater. During a normal acceleration, this left a very short period when the droop lever was vulnerable to early retraction. However, the manufacturer hadn't anticipated the advent of noise abatement procedures, where the engines are throttled back and the acceleration slowed during the latter part of the cleanup to prevent noise. Due to the longer acceleration, this increased the danger period by some 100 seconds to nearly two minutes. The existing conflict between the older and younger pilots in BEA had been exacerbated by industrial dispute. A demand for better paying conditions was generally being supported by the junior pilots and opposed by the senior ones. Indeed, some first officers were already on strike. Shortly before his flight, Captain Key had a violent shouting match with a first officer, described by one bystander as the most violent argument he had ever heard. 
In addition to this, because of a threatened worldwide disruption planned by the International Federation of Airline Pilots the following day as a protest against aircraft hijacking, Captain Key's aircraft was full, despite Sunday usually being a quiet day. Key was obviously upset by the altercation, and although he apologised afterwards, he was probably still agitated as he walked out to his aircraft, his blood pressure at a high level. Unbeknown to anyone, Key was already suffering from a dangerous heart complaint, which might well have been exacerbated by the upset of his outburst. It was discovered in post-mortem that he had severe arteriosclerosis, a narrowing of the arteries, and in addition it was found that he had a tear in his left coronary artery. Bleeding from this tear had started not more than two hours before Key's death. Medical opinion differed, but it was quite possible that the stress of the argument caused the damage, and following it he might well have suffered pain, discomfort and a heart arrhythmia, leading to collapse and unconsciousness. It was just after 4pm when Captain Key taxied his trident out of its parking position at London's Heathrow Airport to runway 27 right. The wind was gusty, but the weather was mild, with slight rainfall from a thousand-foot ceiling. The aircraft took off normally and began a southerly turn, part of the Dover 1 departure, just before entering the overcast layer. After contacting London Centre, Flight 548 was cleared to 6,000 feet, which was acknowledged by Key. This was their final transmission. Less than a minute later, the Trident re-emerged from the cloud, in a nose-high attitude, and fell into a field just south of the A30, a major London road. Though there was little post-crash fire, all 112 passengers and six crew were killed. At that time, there were no voice recorders fitted to UK commercial aircraft, but the Trident did have an accident data recorder. The aircraft left the ground at 145 knots and quickly reached the V2 speed of 152 knots. The undercarriage was retracted and at 355 feet and 170 knots, the autopilot was engaged with the airspeed lock, even though the correct climb speed was a little faster at 177 knots. Passing around 700 feet, they began the left turn towards the Epsom NDB, and 90 seconds after takeoff, Key reduced power as part of the noise abatement procedure. Then the flaps were retracted. During the left turn, the airspeed reduced to 157 knots, some 20 knots below the target speed. 114 seconds after departure, and at a speed of only 162 knots, the droops were selected up. They were 63 knots below the safe retraction speed. One second later, the visual and audible stall warnings activated, followed almost immediately by the stick shaker and then the stick pusher, heaving the control yoke fully forwards and disconnecting the autopilot. The cacophony of noise with the stall warning and autopilot horn blaring must have been obvious, but Key held the nose up. 
A second round of stick shaker warnings and stick pusher activation followed, but still no recovery action was taken. Finally, for a third time, the aircraft systems tried to save the crew, but the only response from Key was to deactivate the very system that was trying to unstall the aircraft. As a result of the stick pusher activation, the aircraft had descended a few hundred feet and accelerated to 193 knots, but it was still below the droop-up stall speed. However, Key raised the nose once more to reduce the speed to the normal climb speed of 177 knots. By now, the nose was over 30 degrees up, and the trident had entered a deep stall. It was too late. Recovery was impossible. With the aircraft descending at over 4,500 feet a minute, it only took 20 seconds for the troubled flight to end in the most tragic of circumstances. Air traffic controllers noticed the disappearance of the aircraft from their displays, but the emergency services weren't made aware for 15 minutes. It was a motorist who, seeing the crash, stopped at a house to ring the airport. The first on the scene was a nurse who lived nearby, and she made heroic efforts amidst the wreckage to help any of the victims who were still alive. The inquiry commented that her actions could not be praised too highly, However, they said the decelerated forces of the impact were too great for the human frame to survive. One male passenger did survive the impact, but died shortly afterwards in hospital. A young girl also survived, but she died at the crash site. As news of the crash was broadcast, the nearby main road became choked with sightseers, and there were distressing stories of trophy hunters raking through the impact area before the authorities could gain control. The area had been soaked with aviation fuel, and fire that had been absent in the crash itself was soon started when cutting equipment was brought to bear on the fuselage. Finally, there were over 30 ambulances and fire appliances in attendance, but by then there was little that could be done. The following day, the Right Honourable Michael Hesseltine, the Minister for Aerospace, announced that there would be an ad hoc tribunal, popularly called a public inquiry, to investigate and report on the accident. This was completely contrary to the usual convening of an accident investigation board, and two of the pilots' unions protested at the conduct of the inquiry, which was likened to a lawyer's picnic where the parties involved tried desperately to avoid blame or attempted to secure positions for future litigation. Indeed, the conduct of the inquiry was blamed for the death of a senior AIB inspector who committed suicide. The inquiry tried to establish who moved the droop lever, setting into motion the entire tragedy. Neither Captain Key nor Keithley, his co-pilot, had cause to retract the droops, and had they done so, then Ticehurst, whose job it was to monitor such actions, would surely have spotted the error. Might Keithley have misinterpreted an order from his captain to change the order pilot height to 6,000 feet as an instruction to put up the droops? Did Key, distracted by his medical condition, raise the droops by accident, thinking perhaps his inexperienced co-pilot had mishandled the flaps? 
What was obvious was that the droop lever was moved either by Key in the pain and distress of his heart condition or by his inexperienced second officer. The final report, issued nearly a year later, listed the main causes as a failure to maintain the correct airspeed, a premature retraction of the leading edge devices, a failure to monitor the aircraft configuration, a failure to recognise the reason for the stall warnings, and an error in disabling those systems. The underlying causes were that Captain Key was suffering from a heart condition, that having Captain Collins on the flight deck may have been a distraction to Ticehurst, the monitoring second officer, the low experience level of second officer Keithley, and a lack of a bulk mechanism to prevent droop retraction at too low an airspeed. Apart from the obvious modifications that the Trident needed to prevent movement of the droop lever below the safe speed, this tragedy also set in motion the requirement for cockpit voice recorders to be fitted to UK-registered airliners. Also, the handling of subtle pilot incapacitation became a training requirement. What the inquiry seemed unable to do was to fully analyse the impact that the lack of crew resource management had on the performance of those on the flight deck since the concept had yet to be studied nor implemented by the industry. In subsequent years, however, this accident would be studied and analysed by generations of airline pilots who all strive to learn the lessons.